Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to our first of what I hope to be many deep dives in church history. And um, I am uh, very much looking forward to this. We have uh, a number of them planned out. Uh, actually, let me pull up my list here. Uh, how many do I have here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think I've got about 40 of them planned out. Now, obviously, most of those are not going to actually ever materialize. Um, and some of them will get more involved. Some of them will be less involved. But uh, um, boy, I tell you, I am excited to start it all. As we as we uh, pull into this, there's going to be a number of things that are probably less familiar uh, than other places in history. But I, uh, I always want to tie it in with theology and the Christian life. Because the whole point that we come to church history, as we discussed when we were looking through the uh, entirety of why it is we do church history, uh, I always talk about that on the front of walking through church history and definitely discussed it last time we were together with the reflections on church history. And that is, there's a lot of wisdom in all of the occurrences and the mistakes that have been in the church gone by. And uh, I want to have us be able to learn from our brothers and sisters throughout time and understand their wisdom, understand their uh, errors, and to be able to learn from both. Um, that is one of the great essences of Christian fellowship. And I always say a study of church history is just an extension of fellowship. Um, and so it does fall into us to study these things, to look into them. And I really uh, hope you have the, uh, the opportunity to stay with us through this whole one this evening because it's uh, well, kind of starting on a, a real niche area, but something that is of curiosity to me. And that is, as you can see from the title here, St. Columba, Iona, and Early Lindisfarne. Now, you may well be uh, forgiven if you look at that and go, I have no idea what uh, what century we are in. I have no idea what country we are in. I have no idea where in the world we are. And if that is the case, then welcome to the wonderful world of 6th and 7th century Celtic and Pictish, also known as Scottish and English history, uh, before the Viking invasions and after people like St. Patrick and uh, while Druidism is being run out of Ireland, you have all sorts of um, uh, individual kingdoms that are in charge in various places. You have no unified kingdom going on in the British Isles. And um, it, we are going to settle our time there beginning in the 6th century, the 500s, and kind of discuss how in the world one man's worst sin, as I show in the, uh, in the description here, uh, what if your greatest sin was transformed into a repentance that changed the course of history? Uh, can you say, well, I know I'm learning something new tonight. Nothing sounds familiar. Yep, that's exactly correct. Uh, I figured for a first deep dive, I should show uh, one of the lesser known discussed uh, aspects of church history. And certainly one of the ones that I have a, a special place in my heart for is Celtic Christianity and, and the influence that was worked through the monasteries at Iona, uh, Lindisfarne, and several others that reached not only into the British Isles, but even into Western Christianity before it uh, became centered in Rome. Um, so we are going to uh, really delve into an aspect of church history, at least Western church history, that is hardly ever discussed. 
Um, so let's kind of dive into this because I'm excited about it. Um, I will say these deep dives do require a great deal more study uh, in order to present on them. Uh, I, I will also say this on the front end. We're dealing with a lot of Celtic names uh, that I am just going to pass over because I know that I will not pronounce them properly. Um, and so I'm going to stick with the anglicized versions. Uh, if you are a historian that loves your Irish history, my deepest and humblest apologies for that, because there is no way that I'm going to come through here and try to pronounce all of this stuff in uh, in ancient Gaelic. Um, so I'm going to stick with the anglicized words and uh, work my way through that. And uh, I hope you can uh, understand <laughs> very much so. I promise if you are an expert in, uh, in Gaelic uh, history and language, uh, you would not want to listen to this entire thing with me using those uh, terms. So <clears throat> let's start with just the uniqueness that is Irish Christianity. Um, it is one of my favorite uh, eras and epochs of, of church history, and one that when we're walking through the chronological walkthrough of church history, we do not deal with very much, um, because again, we're in this era that the modern world looks at and calls the Dark Ages. Um, but I hope to kind of show you, that's really a horrible terminology for this time period. Um, but Irish Christianity. Um, so if you can think of the British Isles, if you're not uh, overly familiar with the geography of this, you have uh, England and then the top of the English Isle uh, is Scotland. Uh, and this is modern day geography. And then Ireland is sitting to the west out, um, you know, a several, you know, boats journey uh, out to the west. And these sit as separate islands uh, here in the world. Uh, Christianity from the Roman Empire had moved as far as the British Isles. Uh, it came into England. It came a bit into Scotland as well. Um, but after the fall of Rome in the fifth century, a lot of that influence died away. But there were other missionaries that had gone around to the island of Ireland and had planted seeds of Christianity. One of those we celebrate every March. That would be St. Patrick and his uh, story there. Not the topic for tonight, but certainly him, amongst many other missionaries, uh, began to found uh, schools and monasteries and expanded out to reaching all of Ireland to for Christianity. Now, Ireland is a very unique country. It had a whole lot of its own unique uh, theological beliefs, views of the world, that when Christianity came to Ireland, you had a very special version of syncretism. Uh, there were aspects of the indigenous uh, religion that matched up with Christianity in really, really uh, harmonious ways in some points and very disharmonious ways in other points. And there was always this, this struggle back and forth to how Celtic can we make Christianity without losing Christianity? And there was, uh, there was quite a few things in Christianity that could be uh, brought wholeheartedly into the gospel presentation. Uh, quite fantastic, actually. Um, they, they saw a, a much thinner separation between the physical world and the spiritual world. And so hearing stories of miracles or hearing stories of, of God becoming um, one of us really sat in their minds much more naturally than it does in our minds. And so they're uh, what they would refer to as thin places, this this uh, place where the veil between 
uh, the physical world and the supernatural world was especially thin. Um, this uh, applied not only to places, but also uh, early concepts of relics and uh, almost expected miracles. Uh, the miraculous was nearly expected uh, in their worldview. And so there was not a uh, there was not a huge hump to get over with this idea of of God being coming man or uh, God working miracles into the world or even sending out people that were capable of miracles. That type of story sat very well in their uh, concept. This is born out of their what I refer to as indigenous religion there, uh, which if you know anything about Irish history or Celtic tradition, uh, you know that to be Druidism. Druidism sees a huge overlap between the natural world and the spiritual world, uh, and that there is this, this interplay between them that really most of the other places in the West really never had. You didn't even have that from the, the Vandals or the Ostrogoths. You didn't have it anywhere near this level. Uh, they had in Druidism a, a respect for nature and, and kind of the, the sacredness of nature. Uh, their gods and goddesses played uh, massive roles in the natural world. They were associated with water or they were associated with uh, the plant life or whatever the case may be. It was just a, if you can think of, if, think, if, if any of you are fans of Lord of the Rings, a lot of this concept will go into things like the Ents uh, or, or into how the elves live so close to uh, the the natural world, and they're almost like a part of it in some ways. Like their songs help the forests grow. Uh, this type of stuff. That a lot of that is influenced by a real life religion of Druidism uh, that was that was prevalent among the uh, Celtic world before the incoming of Christianity. When Christianity came in through the missionary efforts of several uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire uh, in the West. You had uh, a, a natural attempts to amalgamate Druidism and Christianity, uh, you know, and, and Christians that used to be Druids would look at the world and see God's presence in all the things that he made. Uh, and you would, you would see uh, references even in scripture that talk about this that would stand out to their ears a lot more than it stands out to ours, right? Where Christ is described as in all and through all. Uh, coming from a history of more pantheistic, um, polytheistic background, trying to bring that and almost rein that in was a difficult thing, but there is there is a, a struggle worth having there. Um, there was another massive aspect to Druidism that leads directly into what we're going to be discussing tonight, which I will tell you, we haven't gotten to the topic yet, just trying to give the, the background here. Uh, and that was the the habit of uh, druidic wisdom keepers uh, that lived as hermits. It was it was this unique series of traditions among the Celts to have uh, those who lived and studied on their own with the intention of preserving the wisdom of years gone by. And this is a fascinating aspect of druidism that comes very comfortably into 5th century, 6th century Christianity, because the influx after the fall of the Western Empire of monasticism into the Christian worldview, into the Christian thought, 
takes this concept of preserving wisdom from years gone by and brings it straight into monasticism. If you have been through our talks uh, about the rise of monasticism in the wake uh, of the Constantinian synthesis, uh, or the in the wake of the fourth century, uh, let's put it that way, and this desire to suffer because the government is no longer persecuting us, we must find our own way to suffer. And so living in the desert on your own, you remember the life of St. Anthony, um, uh, even Augustine uh, works into this, uh, Benedictine, um, you know, this type of stuff. This, this concept of interacting with the world so that it makes me suffer was really a lot of the basis for North African uh, monasticism. But when you come to Irish monasticism, it becomes hugely influenced by Druidic thought of one of the purposes of being by yourself is not just merely suffering, although that's perfectly fine in the Christian worldview. It's fine in the Druidic worldview as well. But it's it's being on your own so that you can help preserve things that have passed by, and we do not want to forget them. So these wisdom keepers that were hermits in Druidic uh, religious practice made a almost a full welcome uh, upon conversion into Christianity as a new type of monk. Uh, not that other monks weren't studying, but that these specifically focus themselves on the preservation of texts and of wisdom from years gone by. Um, a lot of this <clears throat> had this, this ideal of being removed from a culture, this kind of hermitism, so that you can preserve something from the ebbs and flows of culture. Um, that is a huge part of what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, let's start. <laughs> that kind of just gives the background of what we're going to be talking about here, um, and at least as far as for culturally speaking and religiously speaking. So let's start into it. St. Columba. This isn't St. Columbus. We're not, you know, discovering America. Uh, I want to give you your time dates on this, not because I think history is really helped by studying things in accordance with just dates, uh, but because when we do these deep dives, we're going to be uh, you know, launching into various aspects. So we're going to be in a different century almost every time we do this because um, I'm not doing it chronologically anymore. So let me give you the dates. St. Columba, uh, born um, in 521 and died in 597, 76 years old, um, 521 to 597. So I want you to first, uh, I want to first point out any date that I give you uh, in anything in the British Isles in the 6th, 7th, or 8th centuries those dates are largely going to be approximate. Um, we don't have his exact birth date. We'd actually do have his exact death date, but we don't have the exact date he left uh, to found Iona. We don't have the exact dates of, of certain aspects of things that we're going to study. It's so very difficult to settle out dates on things that we have very little records of. Uh, in some instances, we'll have a book that's been preserved from this time period, but we won't have like the houses or the monastery or the church or the or the hospital or the school, uh, because again, at this time they were made out of you know timber and and thatch roofs, and so these things do not preserve throughout the years of history. It's not like stone or marble uh, or or even um, limestone. It's you you're not going to have massive things here. And so when we do archaeology for this 
time period is exceptionally difficult to actually settle out where everything was and exactly what it looks like. Um, a lot of this, uh, these time periods, you have land changing hands back and forth uh, based on who won what and who's living in, you know, the 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 stone circle on the top of the hill now. Um, but as far as for uh, monasteries and birthdays and uh, exact happenings, just understand the dates during all of this are with a little asterisk next to every single one of them. Uh, and the first one being his birthday at 521. So just understand that. He was born in Ireland. Uh, and uh, by the time he was about 30 years old, he was ordained as a priest and he was studying under um, a very well-known saint named Saint Finian. Um, now, this is, uh, I'm going to use these terms, saint. Now, I, I know theologically uh, all Christians are saints. Uh, that's how it kind of works. But uh, in history, we have to, you know, work with the cards that history deals us. So St. Columba, St. Finian, uh, these names, um, St. Finian was a very well-known teacher that had accomplished in Ireland um, a very broad missionary endeavor that had settled monasteries and training schools uh, and uh, universities even throughout the country. And most of Ireland at this point had been Christianized to a great degree. I mean, more than 90%. Now, I want, I want that to kind of settle in how significant that is, because at this point, uh, England, which had had a, a large Roman influence uh, in the fourth century, after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, England was, was well, I mean, it wasn't even England. It was, uh, it was dealing with the invasion of the Anglo-Saxons at the time. Um, there was no long-form establishment of Christianity in England. Uh, and the, the land of the Picts, which we now know as Scotland, was really no different. You didn't have uh, any massive involvement of Christianity. You had a lot of very unreached peoples. And so, but then in the middle of that stands Ireland. And Ireland sits as a, a very unexpected beacon of learning and scholarship during a time where the Western Roman Empire had collapsed and people were wondering how in the world Christianity in the West is going to survive. And then Irish Christianity goes to the work of preserving wisdom and sending out missionaries and settling up monasteries and um, even to hospitals and schools and all sorts of other work there in Ireland. Well, that work wasn't being done in Scotland and it wasn't being done in England to any measurable amount at this point. Um, but Ireland was still uh, a place that was, um, as far as for Christianity was concerned, flourishing. Um, and there was a lot of monks and a lot of learned people, even in the mainland, uh, in, in what we now know as France and Germany, um, throughout Western Europe that would look not to Rome for guidance and for direction, and certainly not to Constantinople yet, um, but would look to Ireland. And it was, it was a time period of, of really unusual alliances uh, that would certainly welcome more study uh, from from people who are Christians these days, and that's kind of why we're starting here in the sixth century. Uh, but Saint Columba, he was born to a royal family and had actually claim to royal lineage. Uh, but then again, there a lot of people did because when we're talking about king, we're not talking about just a singular king. 
Uh, we're talking about multiplicity of, of lower lords and rulers and, you know, kind of how uh, all of these things worked out for the, uh, the rest of the uh, medieval age as well. Um, you had all manner of levels and royal blood, this and that. Um, but he became ordained as a priest and was studying under, as I had mentioned, Saint, uh, Saint Finian. Now, Saint Finian uh, had part of this, this part of Irish Christianity of preserving works uh, throughout history. Uh, and that, that's that part of influence and Druidism that uh, makes it such a unique thing for uh, scholarship and for the preservation of things. Uh, one, of the, one of the possessions that uh, Saint Finian had was a Psalter, uh, which was an entire Latin translation of the Book of Psalms. And St. Columba in uh, 560 makes a copy of the Psalter. And it ended up, now this is the strangest thing to modern ears, but I, I just want to lay it out to you first and then I'll come back and explain it. It ended up causing an entire war that led to the death of 3,000 people. Now, let me explain the story about how that happened. St. Columba made a copy of this Psalter uh, for his own personal uh, preference or for his own personal uh, consumption and use. Um, and St. Finian had a dispute over the reality that he believed that any copy of his book uh, would belong to the owner of the original book. That uh, And this is actually ends up being a copyright dispute between these two monks. Uh, St. Finian, who had owned the Psalter, uh, said anything copied out of that should belong to me because that information in there belongs to me. And again, you see almost this appeal to um, it's his responsibility to preserve that kind of stuff or that specific aspect of Christianity. And uh, St. Columba looks at that and goes, I didn't detract anything from your book. It wasn't, it wasn't something that cost your book anything. I did it. It's my work and I can continue on. Besides, you didn't write uh, what was in there. You just merely have a copy of somebody else's uh, book as well. It doesn't, it doesn't really work like that. Uh, that leads to actually a full out and out battle. And to our modern ears, we look at how do you, how do you come to a battle? Well, if you are ever curious about this battle, uh, I would encourage you to go look it up. It is a fascinating concept and, uh, and a window into um, a, a Christianity affected by Celtic tradition. Uh, it is called the a Battle of, uh, don't worry, I'm going to spell this, the uh, the Battle of uh, Cold Drem, uh, Dremne, uh, Dremen, excuse me, Cold Dremen. Uh, it is spelled C-U-L-D-R-E-I-M-H-N-E, Dremen. Yeah, uh, D-R- I want to make sure I get this right. D-R-E-I-M-H-N-E. That is correct. Okay. Cold Dremen. Uh, it is, it is uh, more commonly known as the Battle of the Book. Uh, and the reality is that uh, here's where you can actually see this kind of uh, thin veil between supernatural and the natural world play out. Um, in this battle, they each would take the book that they were trying to decide who is the actual... Uh, one who owns this. And on St. Columba's side, he took his copy and placed it in a satchel and had uh, walked around his 
um, his army that was going to be defending his side of things. Those who were, again, he's part of royal lineage there as well. Uh, and they would bring this book into battle with them. And then on the other side, uh, you would have uh, St. Finian and the King of Ireland as well uh, with the with his actual copy of it because the king had sided with King uh, with uh, um, with St. Finian in the story. And the battle goes down and 3,000 men die in this battle. And St. Columba has actually ended up uh, very closely excommunicated, but ended up agreeing to an exile. And after this battle, which took place early 560s, the all the all the different sources all disagree uh, with this. And somewhere between 561 and 563 is where this battle took place. Um, or 560 and 563 is where it took place. Because by 563, we find that um, that St. Columba is exiled out of Ireland. Not to any place specifically. Just get out of this country entirely. And so you have... You have the start of a story where this man and his 12 most dedicated companions are all exiled from Ireland, given a leather-coated wicker basket of sorts, which you can call a bit of a boat, uh, to sail away. And if they all drown at ocean, I suppose that's fine too. Uh, but exiled at least off of our island and they can go somewhere and try to scratch out a living for themselves somewhere else. Well, St. Columba left Ireland and found himself up amongst uh, very distant relations of his up what we would call Scotland. I'm going to use a lot of the modern words for this so that, you know, we don't get really lost in the weeds here. Um, and he comes to a little windswept island called Iona. And there he and his um, his 12 friends uh, built a church and a monastery right there on the island of Iona and had a goal of reaching Scotland in the same way that Ireland had been reached for Christianity. Now, this is kind of where I go into the more personal theological side of this. St. Columba's response in the aftermath of the battle was uh, one of deep regret. Now, he writes about the, the concept and has written about his reaction to this is that he desired that after this to live a life of repentance and of contrition uh, in order to make up for the loss of 3,000 people. He saw it as his responsibility to personally evangelize that many people. For the rest of his life, he would dedicate uh, all of these pursuits to um, to reaching that many people. And from where he sat in Iona, which is on the western shore of Scotland, where all of the uh, the inlets and islands all kind of break to pieces out there, they settle up on this island and build a church and a monastery and a, a library to accomplish in Scotland what had already been accomplished in Ireland. <clears throat> they end up settling in the island of Iona and use this as a base for the conversion of Scotland. That is in 563 AD. When they were working uh, in the midst of all of this, one of, the, one of the aspects of Iona was to bring into 
the the reaching of Scotland, the same Celtic Christianity, the flavor that it had come with, uh, with this concept of preservation of things, teaching and training of people uh, in order to go out as hermits and missionaries into the world uh, to reach them, to evangelize people, uh, to build schools, to build hospitals, whatever the case may be. And Columba and his companions saw it as their responsibility in their exile to reach Scotland for all of this. Uh, and successful were they. So successful, in fact, that they ended up expanding out missionary journeys and uh, monasteries throughout all of Scotland and ended up being asked to come and found similar uh, purposes down in Northumbria, down in what is now modern day England, uh, and founding other places down there for the same purpose. But I want to talk about a little bit about Iona first before we kind of move into that. St. Columba had his goal in mind as one of building a life of repentance, making up for what had happened uh, at Coldremne. And the reality is that, I mean, in Christianity, we know we cannot make up for our sins, but we certainly can pursue amends in the midst of being forgiven. And that is something that uh, I can say personally, after reading a lot of St. Columba's story, I can at least appreciate uh, to a great degree, his his fervor to to live in accordance with and bear fruits in keeping with repentance, because he certainly did that, um, and he took everything that he knew and made it a a possibility to uh, to continue to reach the world. Now, this wasn't even in just preserving information, like just a just as a library, but it was preserving in a very uniquely uh, awesome way. Um, if you ever have a chance to look up, or if you're watching this, you have um, um, or listening, and you have your phone in your hand, you're welcome to search for this uh, called the Book of the Kells, the Book of Kells, K-E-L-L-S, uh, and just look at some of the designs of the type of preservation work that they were doing uh, in Iona. That book was uh, written and copied, illuminated there. Um, it, it is it is simply a remarkable thing in Irish history and in Celtic Christianity to not just simply preserve things or to make things. When they make crosses, for instance, or when they make engravings, that is never a simple one. A Celtic cross has all sorts of metallic inlays that uh, have lace work and interweaning knots and all sorts of fancy stuff. Uh, I find it absolutely one of the most beautiful parts of um, uh, of, of art history. Uh, it's why actually I wear a ring with an Irish cross on it. And there was a lot of aspects to that that could be brought into this, uh, this world of illuminated manuscripts. And if we're going to preserve a Bible, what kind of decorations do we do for a Bible? If it's the most fantastic book of all time, um, shouldn't we have the most fantastic physical book of all time? And you can see this overlap between the physical and the spiritual world, where if if what we're reading in the text speaks of, of, of reality to such a beautiful extent and an inlaid extent, then what should that book look like? And you're going to see uh, design for things like the Book of Kells, which is uh, still, by the way, in, uh, I believe it's in the British Library in London now. Um Oh, no, that's not true. I believe it would be actually would be in an Irish library or Irish uh, museum. I'm not sure where that is right now. Um, but 
you would see things uh, that arise out of this, this way of preserving things, not as just rank information and not just in just a dry way in a dry manner, but even if you're just copying down, we actually still have Columbus Psalter, the thing he wrote with his own hand. We actually still have that exact book, um, the most of the pages at least. And even he wrote very beautifully. Uh, it's not a huge illuminated manuscript, but just copying down a book for his own consumption, still gorgeous lettering, beautiful calligraphy. Why? Because what is in there should be reflected by what it's made of. Its appearance should reflect its meaning. And it's something that uh, I think in modern Christianity, I think in modern Christianity, we've almost completely lost the idea that something should resemble its purpose. And I'm not saying if that's good or bad. I'm saying that's just one of the aspects of our culture. And one of the aspects of their culture is that if something is meant for something, a beautiful purpose or is meant for a, uh, a high purpose, then it should have the appearance of something high and beautiful. Uh, and the Book of Kells, which was made in Iona, was certainly no exception to that. Um, this is how they pursued everything that they continued to do. Uh, when they came to Iona, they immediately started planting um, wheat. They they started building. They started um, providing a place. Basically, it was going to be the uh, ground zero for how they were going to reach all of Scotland and even beyond Scotland. Um, this type of scholarship was not being done in, uh, in Northwestern uh, Europe at the time on the mainland. And so when, when people would be traveling and making pilgrimages in the coming decades to Iona um, to either study there or to find solace there and or to copy there or be trained there, this would be a center post for so many different aspects of, of missionary journeys throughout Northwestern uh, England and even, yeah, down into the Mediterranean. Um, again, the Western Empire has crumbled. There is, there's no, there's no singular government holding together anymore in Rome. There's no uh, singular place where you can go and say this is the, this is the place where our culture is being um, preserved. Most of that is going to go to the church, but even the church, uh, the the Western Orthodox Church is what it was known as at the time. Um, what became the Roman Catholic Church, the Western Orthodox Church had so little power and so little ability. Um, that there was uh, there was even a lacking and waning influence even through the northwestern territories of Europe. And so you would have uh, basically filling in that vacuum of, necess of necessity, you would have Irish missionaries. You would have, uh, even you would have, uh, uh, this would be before the Frankish kings, but this would be from the same area, those leaving the mainland to come and be trained by Celtic Christians and then go back home. And so this form of Christianity and eventually starts influencing multiple uh, different places and countries throughout Europe and England, but primarily it is in the British Isles where a lot of this influence plays its role. Now, I don't put that uh, description into this episode, uh, what if your greatest sin was transformed into a repentance that changed the course of history? I don't put that in there lightly. Uh, most of the, the history of Christianity in England and in Scotland, in Wales, and in um, at least as it developed in the later years, can be traced back to St. Columba and his exile. Uh, it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing. If he did not carry out uh, that thing that he regretted for the rest of his life, 
and then worked into it a repentance that led to a very unique way to reach Scotland um, for uh, for Christ in his uh, in his way. It would not have preserved multiple aspects of Christianity. We would have almost entirely lost. And we're going to kind of get into how that happened. Um, Iona and its influence through missionary expansion is really second to none. Uh, now, a lot of people you'll see, if you notice one of the names uh, in the in the title of this episode, it might have been Lindisfarne. We're going to get there. Iona comes before Lindisfarne. Uh, Iona, even in its influence, comes before Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne uh, is another holy island down in England uh, for the reaching of England. We'll get there. Um, but Iona through its missionary expansion really ended up, um, extending unique flavor that is Irish Christianity throughout Western Europe. Uh, they had a specific commitment as we have discussed in historical preservation in study, and then expected encounters with God throughout the natural world. And so this type of how we, how we interact with the world, how we serve the world, how we, uh, interact with God. Worship was seen so closely related to nature uh, due to its its particular cultural milieu. Um, you, you really can't get out of it. I mean, let, let's put it this way. Uh, in modernism, uh, we don't even think about it as modern Christians. We, we think that the worship of God happens primarily in the brain, um, not so much in the experience. Uh, while that is true, it does happen in the brain. The reality is um, we've gone so far the other direction that we think that it's not actually necessary to join with one another. And we can just do such things, you know, in um, in a, uh, a virtual environment, because at least there we can just use our brains, right? As, as if the physical is uh, almost unnecessary, we can just kind of cast it aside. Well, Celtic Christianity would never think of such a thing. Um we would, and I would say they would be much more accurate as far as for Christian theology is than we are when it comes to those things. Um, the uh, And so when we look at this, I, I think it's helpful to see not that it's just different, but that there are certain aspects of it that are able to see Christianity from a different perspective. And in some ways, I would say even a, even a better perspective than what some others had seen it from. Uh, and that includes us. Uh, the influence of I Iona extended way beyond its geographical location, uh, as we were, uh, as we discussed. It was designed to reach all of the British Isles, but it truly did lead uh, even into um, even into the mainland as well. Uh, it led to even a cultural influence as well. Iona, uh, if you looked up the Book of Kells, you can definitely appreciate the the level of work and design they ended up doing at that monastery and at that. Um, uh, at that, uh, studying the library, the whole place of Iona. Um, it was a whole, you know, plaza there, a whole, uh, design, uh, of things there. Um, throughout, uh, all of this, not only was the monastery training people for the spread of Christianity, but it was also, uh, for the preservations of all intellectual purposes. Um, you know, the, it was not just the preservation of scripture. It was all manner of writings and, all manner of wisdom from years gone by uh, and extended not only because it founded so many monasteries in the years afterwards. Um, Columba, after he came to Iona in 563, uh, lived for another 34 years. Now, he comes there when he's about 40, early 40s, and then he continues this work into his mid-70s. 
uh, and and establishes monasteries throughout Scotland that um, that bring that same zeal for preservation, for proclamation, and for interacting with the world in specific ways. Um, and Iona provided a base for the entire Celtic Christianization of Scotland. Um, one of one of those who trained at Iona was a man named Saint Aidan, and Saint Aidan was called down to Northumbria. Uh, if you're not familiar with uh, that, that would be more of a uh, a southeastern England uh, these days. Northumbria, the King of Northumbria, was uh, sent word to Iona to have someone come down and found a similar uh, mission, a similar seminary, if you will, <laughs> a similar uh, missionary school, monastery, um, training ground uh, down where he is so that that can be reached out to that. Well, again, the same kind of thing goes. Uh, in Celtic Christianity, you're going to have uh, a desire for if somebody is going to be training people who study, that's going to have to be removed from the culture in some way. Iona was not on an island by accident. When they founded these things, they actually founded not just that the person is a hermit, uh, that would be kind of built out of Druidism, but that the entire school, the entire monastery, everything is a hermit. And so when the king of Northumbria calls down for uh, a missionary to come down from Iona and settle in uh, in Northumbria, they choose a, a tidal island called Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne, uh, founded in 635. Uh, now this, you have to understand, this would be, you know, almost 40 years after St. Columba dies. Uh, and so the, the testament of what has been going on in Iona has been going on for 60, almost 70 years at this point. Uh, and most of Scotland already has monasteries throughout. Most of it has been reached, uh, at least in, in one way or another. I would say that, uh, St. Columba, who was, uh, who was intending for the salvation evangelization of 3,000 people um, as a response to that, um, uh, you know, intended to uh, to come out and uh, express the... Sorry, I just read something and my train of thought just went away. Uh, where was I? Iona, that's right. Uh, Iona had, had reached out to a lot of Scotland and the, uh, Northumbria and the lower parts of England had yet to be reached. And so their, their desire to have uh, those come down and uh, do what had been done in Scotland throughout southeastern England um, was, certainly, uh, was certainly there. Uh, question here, Ken, you ask, uh, did Columba and uh, St. Finian ever reconcile? Oh, that's a good question. Let me think through this here for a second. I had to read a bunch of things. I do not ever recall them reconciling. Um, I do know, <clears throat> I do know that uh, Columba had to go back and settle some disputes, um, some rulership disputes, actually, which was really fascinating. Um, I do not believe I had ever read about Finian and Columba ever reconciling. That's a good question. You know what? Let's look that up here while <laughs> we are teaching, because um, I know I read something about that. Meanwhile, while I'm trying to pull up some of these things, um, 
Let's see. Sorry. You're looking at a live show. If you're listening to the podcast, I apologize. <laughs> this is actually taped off of a live show. So uh, what are you going to do? Um, do, 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 do. Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, so one of the books I was reading here. Uh, yeah, that's where he's... Okay, I thought he had stated something about it. No, there's actually no historical evidence that they ever reconciled. Um, fascinating. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. There's all sorts of things from this time period that do not get preserved, um, ironically enough. <laughs> A time period that's built around the preservation of things uh, does not preserve its stories very well. Um, so, no, uh, as far as I can tell and as far as I am reading... Um, there was no reconciliation between the two of them uh, that we are aware of. I would imagine something had to have happened at some point because their paths must have crossed at some point in the next, you know, 30 some odd years as, as entire countries were being Christianized and monasteries were being founded everywhere. Though I will say it is possible uh, that uh, two branches um, in the middle of all of that just never interact again. Uh, that's possible as well. Um, I will say when Columba came to Iona, uh, I remember reading this little story of his, um, one of his, one of his friends wrote about what he did as soon as he got, uh, to Iona, um, crawled up onto the, uh, this mound that is a little ways up onto the Island, uh, to try to see if he could see Ireland again. Um, and he wanted to ensure that he could not see even a piece of Ireland, basically wanted to leave that entire part of his past behind him um, and couldn't see it from there and like intended never to go back. It, it doesn't mean that he never did. Uh, it just means that um, that's kind of his attitude uh, at the very beginning that, you know, leaving everything there in the past and we're going to, you know, scratch out a new life here type thing. So um, there is no historical evidence I am aware of. I'm welcome to be uh, corrected on that if anyone can trace anything down of Columba and uh, St. Finian uh, reconciling? Good question. Um, <clears throat> okay, St. Aidan. All right, so the king in Northumbria down in Southeast England wants the same thing that's happening up in Scotland to happen down with him. Now, the, here's here's one of the fascinating things about this. As, uh, as we go into this, we understand that the expansion of what is happening for Christianity in the British Isles is not consistent with Roman Christianity at least as far as for certain habits and ways we do things. And, uh, you know, the ways like, for instance, that the uh, monks cut their hair, the days that they celebrate Easter and so forth, right? Um, again, little things that we don't think of that affect church history and affect how people live next to each other because they can't handle each other's cultures. Um, you know, for instance, you have a completely different way of looking at time in Celtic Christianity. Uh, Celtic people looked at time as cyclical uh, and it followed a series of cycles that in the Roman world, they don't see the cycles like that. Um, there are certain cycles, but it it's not based on that. We, we tend in the West to see time much more linearly than you do in uh, in cultures that are a lot closer to nature. Cultures that are a lot closer to nature tend to see time as cyclical because you pay attention to things like seasons and and epochs and um, uh, you know uh, lunar cycles. You see uh, eclipses. You see all manner of things. Almost everything happens in nature in cycles, and so you will tend to look at time that way. 
in in more quote unquote civilized cultures, you don't look at it like that. You look at it almost more progressively. Uh, and so uh, the calculation, for instance, of when Easter was, uh, because it was based on Jewish Passovers, which were based on lunar cycles, people argued for different times as when to celebrate Easter. Um, not, not in finding out when the exact original Easter date was, but in how to celebrate it going forward. That's not really a small thing. That was actually a pretty big discussion throughout church history is how do we actually settle out when Easter is? And even today, Eastern Orthodox um, uh, Christians celebrate Easter at a different time than Western Christians. Um, if you're Protestant, you celebrate at the same time as Catholics um, because we have a shared history, obviously, in the West. But Celtic Christians celebrated at a different time uh, because they had a completely different concept of cycles and so forth. Uh, and so that, that's really hard because when there's a resurgence of Roman Christian influence in the 7th century, as, as the power of Rome starts growing, not as a culture, but as a church, uh, all of a sudden it kind of runs into each other. And that's going to happen uh, in, the, in the 7th century. We're going to see it. Lindisfarne is going to be one of the places it happens. Uh, Lindisfarne, however, it's, it's founded in 635. Uh, St. Aidan is the one who comes down and does this. Um, and, uh, he comes down, he arrives from Iona, which again, off the Island of Western Scotland, uh, it is a week long travel. Uh, if you're making good time, uh, all the way down to, uh, the Northumbrian King, a King by the name of King Oswald, um, Aiden. Uh, founded a monastery on Lindisfarne, which if you ever get a chance uh, to visit either Iona or Lindisfarne, or I know we have a lot of listeners actually in England and in Scotland, um, please send me a picture or something that you took. I it's It looks like such an awesome place. Um, uh, or just brag to me about it in the, uh, in the comments if you've ever seen it. Um, it's something I want to see someday. Um, you know, I want to see Ireland. I want to see the British Isles. I haven't been there before, um, but I would love to see these islands. I know there's not a lot there to, uh, at least not anything from the, uh, from the originals, but to just kind of see a place where so much history happened and so many things uh, intersected, I think would just be, uh, just fantastic. Um, but in Lindisfarne, Lindisfarne is this really interesting place. It's kind of like this, um, a halfway house between choosing an island versus choosing something that is a little bit more practical than an island. Uh, because Lindisfarne is only an island when it's high tide. And at low tide, it goes low enough so that you can take a road back to the mainland. And so it's a really convenient twice a day ferry that happens in the natural world. So they they choose Lindisfarne as a specific place uh, to settle on this monastery. And uh, Aiden, St. Aiden, uh, founds his monastery in Lindisfarne. He serves as his first bishop. Uh, and it's, um, it's a great place for an isolated place that also is a practical way to get back to the mainland. Pretty awesome stuff. Um, suitable place for a monastic life and, you know, all sorts of things. And plus, nearby, you could have uh, King Oswald to, uh, to be its uh, patronage, to be able to pay for all of this. Uh, kind of nice to have a king that's willing to pay your bills to establish places like libraries, something I want to do someday. So if any Kings are listening and you want to pay for a library in upstate New York, uh, you're welcome to, uh, yeah, you're welcome to suggest an Island. I'll help. <laughs> uh, the Lindisfarne uh, world and even the community that uh, they built there, the, the monastery, the training center, uh, e library, 
everything, um, brought a whole lot of Celtic Christianity now into southeastern England. Uh, southeastern England then becomes a huge center of learning and Christian scholarship. Uh, again, I'm, I don't know why I keep sending you out for stuff like this, but um, that's probably what's going to be with these deep dives. If you want to see kind of some of the stuff that was going on there, and you can see how well influenced it was for Myona, look at the Lindisfarne Gospels. Most likely, at least in part, uh, were decorated and and composed on uh, on the island of Lindisfarne. Whether part of it was in Iona or some of it was on the main, nah, people argue about that kind of stuff. But um, because it's so awesome, I'm going to go ahead and attribute it to Lindisfarne anyway. Uh, so does almost everyone in history. But uh, the Lindisfarne Gospels, again, absolutely gorgeous um, works. Um, uh, you know, and again, the focus, the focus on the Gospels, the focus on Christ, God who became man, did miracles, and lived among us. I mean, that kind of stuff. Celtic Christianity just eats up naturally. And it's really, really fascinating to see it as they begin reaching out into this now new Anglo-Saxon world um, and, and something that's not even a, a gathered together country yet of, of England. We've got all sorts of different pieces and parts, um, you know, and, and we'll have that for another three or 400 years. Um, but Lindisfarne is, is now going to be a center for reaching. So, as as all of that had happened in Irish Christianity, and then as Iona was used to reach all of Scotland, now Lindisfarne is going to be used as, as a jumping point to reach all of England. That was at least the intention. And for all practical intents and purposes, it worked. You had multiple monasteries all throughout uh, England, all throughout Scotland, all throughout Ireland. And all of it was Celtic Christianity. Now. That leads to some issues, and some of them I've already even hinted at. And you know, anytime you you look up Lindisfarne, you're going to hear Viking raids and things like this. That's all. That's all eighth century stuff. Right now, we're going to deal with the stuff back here, because and that's why I say early Lindisfarne, because this this is the stuff that when we're Christians studying other Christians about how they handled issues, this is really where the meat of it is at. Um, and and one of those, and and uh, where where some of this study is going to end up uh, finishing up tonight, is the Synod of Whitby. The Synod of Whitby, W H I T B Y. Um, the Synod of Whitby took place in 664. Right? It was uh, it was a church council in Northumbria, uh, right right there where Lindisfarne is, uh, and. The issues that were coming up was we have disagreements between Celtic and Roman Christianity. Again, in the 7th century, the re-rise of the Roman church's influence on the outs, uh, the outer parts of, of its influence, that kind of stuff began to have a rise again. Remember, if, if, you, if you're getting your, your concept of all these timelines and going in your uh, mind, the, um, the, by the time we get from... Uh, St. Columba's death, and then you've got uh, St. Aidan going out, Lindisfarne getting settled, and all these types of things. Now we're going to find ourselves in the 660s. Since Columba's death, all of uh, Islam has been written and invented by Muhammad, and they have expanded across the entirety of North Africa. So a couple generations, a lot of change that happens. 
And you can have all sorts of arguments between, you know, Vandals, Ostrogoths, Visigoths, and all this kind of stuff. But then when, when you have massive Arabian armies and the Moors uh, coming in, you, you have a, a quick uh, joining together to try to fight some of these things back. And that does lead to a much stronger response uh, of the Roman church at this time. And so in the seventh centuries, if you remember, there was a, there was a, a pretty significant resurgence, uh, resurgence of the Western church at this time. They saw themselves as the preservers of Latin tradition and all things Rome. Uh, they did not agree that, you know, Rome had moved its empire to Constantinople, even though that's actually what happened. Um, you know, with the preservation of what was Rome. And that fell to the church because there wasn't any Roman leaders anymore. And so once that kind of power came back again, the influence and insistence of Roman Christianity and the Roman style of Christianity and worship and dress uh, becomes uh, central again. And when you have Celtic Christianity having spread from Ireland to Western Scotland to all of Scotland to now down to Northumbria and to all of uh, basically all the British Empire or not the British Empire, the British Isles uh, at this point, um, where you, Roman Christianity is going to first run into that is going to be Northumbria, southeastern England. And when it happens, Rome doesn't really take kindly, even at this point in history, because they're starting to argue for this primacy of Rome as, as almost the way of it. Uh, having always been, in, which in reality wasn't, but hey, you know, when you're writing your own history. Um, and so the Synod of Whitby takes place in 664. Uh, the king in Northumbria uh, has uh, one of these one of these issues. Um, you needed something uh, to solve, right? The king uh, was uh, a king named Oswiu at this point. And he was a Celtic Christian, and his wife, whose name I am not even going to attempt to pronounce, um, was a Roman Christian. And so the disagreement reached all the way into the king's household uh, about how exactly to deal with these things. The main central issue was the calculation of Easter, when we should celebrate Easter. The Celtic method was different than the Roman method, and so when you have disagreements on that kind of a level, it's kind of hard to worship together if you're holding Easter on different Sundays. Uh, but also uh, one of the one of the aspects of the monastic tradition uh, was the haircut of monks, which to you and I probably sounds like a small thing. But the Celtic tradition, uh, the the uh, the tonsure, the haircut for the monk involves shaving the front of the head from ear to ear. Uh, the hair of the back was intact, but the hair basically from the midline from ear to ear, all the way across the forehead. Uh, basically, they all had seven head, you know, <laughs> how many fingers, uh, all the way back to the center of their, uh, to their head. And it was, it was um, part of a style that called into memory uh, uh, a saint from years gone by. Well, the Roman style was a very different uh, style. It was where the crown of the head was shaved. Basically, you got the bald spot and then around the side as well. And it resembles what the Roman church believed to be St. Peter's uh, haircut, at least at certain parts in history. Um, and it was meant to be an homage to him. And, uh, and it was argued that he held the keys to the kingdom of heaven, uh, according to uh, their belief. And so the outcome of the synod of Whitby um, was that uh, the king gave into the argument that St. Peter held the uh, keys of heaven 
and they ended up following the Roman practices and then begins uh, a slow um, realignment of the church in what will become Britain or what will become England. Um, and the, the influence of Roman Christianity continues to grow through England and even beyond. Um, and there are some places, Lindisfarne, for instance, the, the bishop in Lindisfarne refuses the outcome of the synod and continues and maintains Celtic traditions. So does Iona. Several others leave and say, you know, we'd, we'd rather stick with, with Celtic tradition uh, for all of these things. But there's there's a lot of complexity that comes out of this. Um, <clears throat> in the long run, Lindisfarne, uh, the monastery eventually does adopt the Roman practices. There's only so long you can hold out with something like that. Um, and uh, the the outcome of that uh, led to uh, led to Lindisfarne continuing to be influential throughout the next several centuries. Um, but the reason I come to this story, the reason I come to this is because uh, and and go all the way back in your mind to to Saint Columba. None of this would have happened uh, if he had just not done the worst thing in his. Uh, in his mind, it, through his more youthful uh, desire to to preserve certain things and and thinking that he is right uh, in something and defends it to such a point that it cost other people their lives. Um, if if that had never occurred, and then he didn't respond by attempting to um, to evangelize in response as part of a repentative life none of this would have happened. And so I put in the description of this episode just as a way to think about the reality of, of even the, um, the great uh, regrets that we have of our own life. I think it's one of the greatest aspects that we can learn from someone like St. Columba is that God, as I say, church history is studying what God is doing in the world. God uses broken people to accomplish his purposes. It's not because broken people are specifically great at doing things. It's because there's no other type of person. And God uses us where we are. And I think that's one of the great things about Columba is that we actually get to learn that you do not have to be a perfect person for God to use you. In fact, you just have to simply admit that you aren't. Confess with your mouth and trust the Lord for his salvation because in the reality, in the long run, we have absolutely no hope of doing these things on our own. And that's why, I, that's why I asked the question, what if your greatest sin was transformed into repentance that changed the course of history? Columbus was. I, I, there's not a single day of his life where he would have ever responded that what happened at Col Drem would have been a good thing, that battle of the book that he led out in. But what was evil, God meant for good. And I see this happen time and time again in church history. And... This is, I think, one of the coolest stories about it. Now, I'm not sure that St. Columba would tell it that way, um, but I can say just reading it and appreciating it from afar without any of the emotion that would be necessary if I was in the middle of it all. Um, remarkable story and someone that I enjoy learning from both in his wisdom and in his warnings. And in reality, that's how we should always learn. There's always wisdom and warnings when attached to sinful people um, and for one, I am grateful for St. Columba. I'm grateful for Iona. I'm grateful for Lindisfarne. I'm grateful for places and people whose names we don't even know that preserved things like this for us. Um, 
we need to be about the same thing. Um, Lord's blessings to you all. Uh, I I hope you enjoy this first deep dive. Uh, we've got other stuff coming, uh, a lot of things coming down the pike. Uh, again, and I know several of you have reached out to me and have made suggestions for deep dives. Um, some of them are great. Others of them are beyond my scope of anything I could ever do uh, for the next couple of years. So um, so if I don't get to yours uh, quick enough, uh, have no fear. I do have a list of them, um, but I will and look forward to discussing as many of these as I can. Um, you never know what, uh, what uh, century you're going to be in, but here at least I hope you can appreciate uh, Celtic Christianity in the 6th and 7th century a little bit more. Uh, Lord's blessings to you all. God be with you.